Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Why don't you stand with me as we uh, prepare to read God's word? Uh, we'll be in the book of Titus, chapter 1, starting at verse 5. And it reads like this. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonest. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, for the fact that it sets the agenda. It talks about things that we don't even know to ask questions about. So I pray that you would remind us of what a blessing it is for us to be led by you through your word, Father. You speak to us, help us to hear you, and to be glad for the words that you speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to take your seat. Good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. All of us have had experience, horror stories, with bad leaders. All of us have sat under somebody that we trusted that has exploited us or somebody else that we know, and we've been hurt and disappointed by a leader. More than, le more than likely, um, this has gone on in your life more than once. And when something goes on in your life more than once, it forms what we call a pattern. And patterns shape how you and I tend to respond to the same thing in the future. How does it happen? How do we get burned by those that lead? I think we get burned uh, because we so easily give our trust away because 
fundamentally, you and I know that leadership is a good thing. It's a very, very good gift, right? So um, all of us grew up with parents or somebody that loved and cared for us for those few years of our lives where we couldn't do anything. And if you didn't have great parents, you saw somebody that did, and you envied them because you knew leadership and somebody caring for you was a very, very good thing. And here's why it hurts so much. It hurts when you and I deposit trust with somebody, but all we withdraw are tears. It hurts when you and I give our trust to somebody and the only thing that they give us back is pain. And then it hurts not just that they gave us back pain, but since they're the leader, it seems as if we're positionally powerless to do anything about it and we just feel stuck. I think this hurt testifies to the power of leadership uh, because the bad examples stick to you like gum on the bottom of your shoe and the good examples seem to roll off, right? So all of us may have been in school for some amount of time. Um, and if I ask you to recall every average teacher that you had, just somebody that did their job fine, it's hard for you to remember. But if I ask you about your bad teachers, then you can tell me with great detail about people like Miss Deaver, my kindergarten teacher at Pilgrims in Houston, Texas, who when we wouldn't take naps, she would dig her nails into her, our arms. I tried to find her online to report her. I can't find her. So the worst thing is, too, is um, you cannot get away from leadership. Anytime you have a group of people, even if you don't have a positional leader, somebody leads. Because at some point in time, this group is going to have to decide what they do. And somebody can say, hey, let's do this. And they go and walk. And if nobody goes with them, they are not leading. Leadership is influence. You can't get away from it. There's no sphere of life that's absent from its benefits or its pains, especially the church. I've been a pastor for over a decade now, and what I've found is I've heard a lot of stories about um, church hurt, and most of them center around leadership in the context of the church, specifically pastors. Pastors who were supposed to care for the family of God, but they wrecked homes by their adultery. Pastors who preach about prosperity in communities where they're the only one that is above the poverty line. Pastors who would rather kick their feet up than wash the feet and serve other people. And the list goes on and on and on. And the thing about leadership is this. You don't even have to be a part of an organization that is being led poorly to be affected by it. Right? These stories of pastors that, that mislead churches, they go viral. And here's what takes place. People don't see that and form an opinion of that church and those Christians. People see bad leadership inside of the church and they form an opinion of the church and all Christians. 
the conversation about leadership affects all of us. And I want you to know, you being in here in the room today, it is necessary that you're involved in this conversation because if bad leaders persist in, in not just the church as, as, uh, as a whole, but even in the life of this church, it can wreck people's experience with the gospel. And this is why I say I love the Bible because we come in asking all types of questions not knowing there's something this important at stake. So what I want to spend our time on today is just to build off of last week. Last week we started and the bottom line that we came to is this. You were saved to serve. God saved you here and he left you here so that you would identify as a servant and do what God has called you to do. And as this book starts off and builds that out, the first place that it tells us to serve or it draws our mind is into the conversation of leadership or service to the world does not start outside of the, the, the church. It starts right inside here, making sure things are in order. So if you would turn with me to Titus chapter 1, and we'll start here in verse 5. Paul says this to Titus, this young pastor of this church that he writes to, and what he says is this. Look, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. His point is that he is writing to this guy, telling him, listen, the church that you are a, a part of is not finished. There is unfinished business. Paul is writing to Titus, who lives in this city. Crete, we'll get more into what Crete was like next week, but Crete was a big city, like every city, in every age, was full of all types of sin, all types of proclamations of freedom that didn't line up with God's word. And the danger for this young church was that the world would influence the church more than the church influenced the world. So Paul is trying to write to him to tell him to get this church in order. And what you and I take away from that is this. This church here in Crete is just like this church and every other church that you go to. Every church is a community under construction. It is not finished. No church is a finished product. So what that means is that as you and I come into church, we don't treat a church like a movie theater. We treat a church like a construction zone. Go to a movie theater to see a product that's done, right? One of my favorite things to do is to go to the movies by myself. And when I come home, my wife asks me, how was it? And I say, it was yeah, oh, it was great, I had a good time, or it was bad. And I critique the stuff that I didn't like, and I, I praise the stuff that I did like, and then I just come home and I move on with my life. If I worked on a construction zone, and I came home and my wife said, and my wife said how's the construction zone, do you know what I'd say? I'd say, ah, well, it's not quite done. It was messy, and there was a lot of work that has to be done. Uh, but I really didn't go to be entertained. I went to put my gifts to work, and it's better than how I found it, but it's not done. That's how you and I are called to treat the church, right? There's an aspect of our time here where for 45 minutes, Lord willing, I'm up here and I'm proclaiming what God is, says through his word, and you sit here in the seat, 
But the rest of the time is meant for all of us to take the stuff that we learn and put it into practice and go to work. Don't treat the church like a finished product. You were saved to serve. The place that God speaks loudest to the rest of the world about what he's like is in the church. And so we need everybody here to treat this place like a construction zone. So you don't go home and say, how was it? Oh, it was great. It was funny. I was bad. It uh, didn't really scratch my itch. You go home and say, was it messy? Did I give my best and go to work? And is it better than how I found it? But the problem that he starts off with in Crete is he says this, yo, Titus, the very first thing that I need you to do is to get the right leaders in place, to get the right leaders in place. They, just like us, have been burnt by bad leaders in the context of the church. And so Paul's saying, hey, I want you to find leaders. And now here's the thing about finding leaders. Um. Having good eyesight is not the same thing as possessing a clear vision, right? So here's what I mean by that. Um, somebody can look at a piece of art, and so long as they can see it clearly, they, they can say, ah, that's good or bad. But it doesn't mean that they know the components of what makes a masterpiece, something Great. All of us have been burnt by folks that have led poorly, and we can say, well, I know what I don't want. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. God cares about us as a church. God cares about you too much for you to be content with just not having a bad leader. God wants us to be led greatly. And so what Paul does is he gives us a vision of what it is that we should look for. And that's the main point of this text. The main point of this text is just this. Good leaders aren't hard to find if you know where to look. Good leaders aren't hard to find if you know where to look. Y'all remember those books? Uh, Where's Waldo? Right, so for those of you that don't, it was this book, right, um, with this British hipster on the front. Right, it had this no long sleeve, red and white shirt. He had these glasses, these blue jeans, and this hat. And so the front of the book gives you a vision of what he's like. And throughout the rest of the book, you have to find him. Now, as you go through that book, sometimes you'll find, you, you'll think that you found him, but it's like, ah, he doesn't have glasses. That's not him. Or you think you find him, ah, but his shirt is short sleeve. That's not him. Or you think you find him, but he, he doesn't have the hat. And so it's, you have to find this person that has all of the above. And the vision on the front of the book is meant so that you could help to find him. That's what Paul is going to do right here. He's going to say, in the life of the church, there are people that are not on staff at the church right now that have all of the characteristics that you would want in a great leader. And your job as a church is to find those Finding good leaders isn't hard if you know where to look. And he gives us three places to look. He wants us to look at their closest relationships. Look at their character. And look at their convictions. 
their closest relationships, their character, and their convictions. Let's start here. Let's stay with verse 5. And verse 5 says this. Look, I want you to complete what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, a few things about that there. One is the word elder, translated throughout God's word as overseer, bishop, pastor, how we understand it from God's word. All of those are interchangeable. So here at this church, we don't use the term elder. We tend to use the term pastor. It's all the same thing. Paul tells them where to look. And and he tells them to look at those three things because he wants us to actually look at their lives. This is why he says, and it is the pattern of the New Testament, that churches are led not just by one guy, but by a group of guys. Churches aren't led not just by one man, but a group of men. Why? Because nobody's Jesus, which means everybody has weaknesses. Everybody has blind spots. So in leading God's church, God doesn't want one person setting the direction of where we go, but a group of folks that can help to cover all of the blind spots. And at this time, there were a bunch of house churches in these smaller towns. And so Paul tells Titus, Not just to have one guy for all of these towns, but to set them up in each town. Why? So that everybody can get a sense of who he is. That pastors are meant to be shepherds among God's flock. Not movie stars that nobody can have access to. His desire is that you would be able, not just to look at how he performs up front, but you would be able to look at his life. And that's why he goes into, and he, you'll, you'll see this word twice in here, blameless. He must be blameless. Right? The, the best way to think about that word is this. Not perfect. Right? Jesus ain't going to come and pass to nobody's church. So if you are expecting Jesus, you're going to be disappointed. Blameless means this. His character is unimpeachable. That the way that he lives and he leads is not surrounded by controversy. People look at his life and they say he may not be perfect, but he's blameless. What does that mean? Well, that's what the rest of the text expounds on. The very first one is this. He wants us to look at his closest relationships. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Let's talk about that real quick. But his first thing is, look at his family. That first phrase, husband of one wife, it doesn't necessarily mean that the pastor has to be married, nor does it mean that if his wife were to die, that he couldn't marry a new wife. What this means, and it's best translated, that this guy is a one-woman man. So that's aimed not just how he treats his wife, but how he treats women. Is he faithful? 
Does he reserve his love and affection for his family and his wife alone? Was he the type of guy that's overly flirtatious with no boundaries? Does he have a track record of taking advantage of women? If that is the case, Paul's saying you don't want a guy like that. You want a guy that is utterly faithful as you look at his home. He is faithful physically, emotionally, and if character is who you and I are when nobody else is looking. He's a one-woman man behind closed doors when he's on his computer. In the day and age that we live in, it's such an indictment on our culture that we would view something like pornography as something that just everybody is in and there's no way to get outside of it. And that is false. When God saved us, when Christ died on the cross for our sins, he died to put our body of sin to death and so that you and I would walk and have new lives. He died to fundamentally change who we are on the inside so that we don't have to struggle with the things that everybody struggles with. That's what it means to be a Christian. And what Paul is saying is don't drop your standards. Then he goes on and says this, yo, his children are faithful, not accused of wildness or re rebellion. Again, this, all right, this does not mean that a man has to have kids, nor does it mean that his children have to be Christian, and here's why I say that. Because as Christians, we all know that we control what we sow, but we do not control what we reap. We can do our best to sow into our kids and to make sure that they love God, but at the end of the day, salvation belongs to God, not to your hard work. But what he is saying is, look, the way that this man is in his house you just want to make sure that his kids are at least faithful in the sense that they're respectful of their dad, right? So you and I, we can sow and God determines what we reap, but somebody that does not sow will not reap. So it's one thing to say, man, this man has done all that he can to care for his wife and his kids, and yet his kids don't believe or his kids don't believe, but it's important because this is the kind of guy that never spends any time with them. This is the type of guy that is more concerned with career advancement than raising his kids at home. And what Paul's saying is that's not the guy that you want. The guy that you want is somebody that takes care of his family. Well, and I think this is the point that he's trying to make. Does his Christianity do any good to the people that he spends the most time with? If his Christianity does not have an effect on the people that he spends the most time with, what is it that makes you think that it'll have an effect on people that he won't spend nearly as much time with? So Paul says that the very first thing is we think of leaders and the greatest leaders. There's so many things that our world values, but above all else, he's saying 
Is he faithful in his relationships? And the family is a good test because here, y'all, when God saved us, um, God made all of us a family. So I want you to hear this. We are family in a very real sense, not like play cousins family. No, that's just my play cousin. We are family. Look, earthly families are united by blood. Listen, the things that we see in earth are a shadow of what God is doing in eternity. So, an eternal family is united by blood, not by our blood, by somebody's blood that was worth a whole lot more, our Savior who died on the cross to make us all family. And so he's constantly going to use this word so that you and I know that when we talk about church, it's not, well, yeah, the church is my family, but my family is family. It's no, 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 no. Um, yeah, the, our family is family, but our church family is a family in a very real way. I have an adopted daughter, and the only time I even think of her as an adopted daughter is when somebody asks me about her uh, adoption. Throughout the week as we play, no, she's my daughter, she's my family. I want to be a nice guy, but then sometimes I feel like, you know, people catch these hands if they mess with my daughter. She's my family. And what God's saying is, no, no, this. You want somebody that is, that as you look at the closest relationships, there's that type of faithfulness. Because if they understand God's word to be true, that's the same type of commitment that they'll give to the church out there. But it's not just that. He also wants us to look at their character, how they carry themselves. Verse 7, as an overseer of God's household, and he does two things, right? He gives us right, five things that they are not to be and five things that they are to be. Verse 7 and 8, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. And he explains what that means. Not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully. Not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. And I think that what he tells us to look at is um, how they carry themselves. How are they as both a thermostat and how are they as a thermometer? How do they react to what goes on outside of them and how do they proactively act. Here's what I mean by that. The first five are pretty much responses to how do they act, right? The, the very first one. How do they act when they're the center of attention or they get a compliment or they have to leave? Are they arrogant? Do they think that it's all about them? Do they make it all about them? Do they get a big head when they hear how good that they've done? What he's saying is you do not want this kind of a guy to lead and have power. How many of y'all have had a boss that made everything about them? It's terrible. But instead, you want somebody that's going to deflect it to God. How do they act when they're wronged? Do they fly off the handle? Do they have a short fuse? 
No, you want somebody that's not quick to speak words of anger or revenge. You want somebody that can be wronged and can take it on the chin and respond graciously, not an excessive drinker. How do they handle their freedoms as Christians? It's not a sin to drink from what I see in God's word. But it is a thing that many people struggle with. We come into rooms and we don't know folks' backgrounds or their stories or what their conscience tells them about. Is he the kind of guy that is only concerned about his welfare and exercises all of his freedoms without any regard for how it will affect somebody else? Or is he the type of guy that is willing to say, yo, I'm free to do that, but I'm going to be mindful. Call me conservative, call me what you want to, but he cares more about the souls of people than his personal present enjoyment. What does he do with power? Is he a bully? Does he enjoy confrontation? Is is he greedy for money? Are his values for sale? Does he talk a big game about how he loves and he cares for his family, but every decision that he makes about work, job, and home life is centered around his finances. Paul's saying, you want somebody that responds to things on the outside world rightly, but it's not just enough for us to have somebody that's not bad. God wants us to have somebody that's, that's good, right? It's more than just the absence of bad things, but the presence of good things. Hospitable, that word means lover of strangers. Does he open his life to people that he does not know, make them feel at home so that he can connect them with Jesus. You should be close enough to see how he uses his home life and his friendships. Does he love what is good? Do you know how you know what somebody loves? You look at what they spend their time on, what they laugh at, and what they talk about. Sensible. Righteous, holy, self-control. Do his appetites control him or can he control his appetites? You want somebody that's not just faithful with his closest relationships. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We want somebody that's fruitful in their character. Their character displays that they're actually Christian. You know the most notable thing about all the criteria that he sets out here is that none of them are all that notable. None of them are different than what every Christian should strive for. So as he says this, it's also a challenge for the rest of the church, all of us to step up our game and to be reminded, no, 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 this is what God meant, this this is what our lives should, should look like. But he tells us not just to look at his closest relationships or his character, but also to look at what he clings to, his convictions. Verse 9, 
holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Here's why I say what he clings to. His convictions, he has to cling on to the gospel message for dear life. Um, I've said on many occasions, because uh, I'm not a swimmer. I cannot swim at all. When I was 19 years old, I worked at this sports camp in Branson, Missouri, um, and they had this lake out back. And there would be times where we would have to get in the lake, and they would say, John, put on a life jacket. Um, and I said, I don't trust one. Give me two, right, as if two would hold me up better. So everybody was out there with life jackets, and I had on two life jackets. And when I got into that water, well, I was clinging to it so hard that it was likely to pop because the life jacket was not optional. It was the thing that was going to save my life. And Paul will say this. Does he hold firmly? to the faithful message as taught. Does he treat the gospel like that? And the reason why I bring that up is this, y'all. He says, does he hold fast to the faithful message as taught? I want you to know that Christianity is not about innovation. It's not about what's new. You do not need a pastor that always comes each week with some fresh word as if what we need to be faithful to God is a new word. We need somebody to remind us of what we already know, right? The faithful message as taught, right? So a good leader is not somebody that's the most innovative or creative or intelligent, but somebody that knows the gospel and knows how to use it. There's too many people that don't hold on to God's word. Think of the two errors that can come with gospel ministry, and it's this. People that run far ahead of what God has said because they fear being irrelevant in the world that they're in. So they'll say more than God says about a certain thing. Or people that lag behind out of fear of being rejected. So they won't say all of what God has said about the thing because they fear being rejected from their friend group or from their party. So they'll talk about how the Bible calls us to be holy, but they'll never mention the justice that's so prevalent in God's word. Or they'll talk a whole lot about justice, but they conveniently leave out the holiness part. Or they'll never talk about God's standards for our sexuality. They'll, they'll just leave all that stuff out. Or they never talk about money. Or, or there's all these things that they lag behind. But what he's saying is you want somebody that's firm in, in their convictions and they don't fear being irrelevant or rejected, but they fear God himself and they hold on to the gospel like two life jackets on a non-swimmer. But you say, what's the faithful message as taught. And it's this, y'all. Every worldview in the world answers two basic questions. What's wrong with the world? And what's the solution? 
nobody believes that everything with this world is just as it should be. So everybody has an answer for what's wrong with the world and what will fix it. So so many folks will say, well, the problem with the world is education, socioeconomic disparity, racism, classism, sexism, greed, you name it. But what the Christian says, the message that we have here in God's word says this, hey, what's ultimately wrong with the world is sin. And here's what sin is. Sin is this, making something other than God the center of your purpose, your meaning, or your happiness. So what the rest of the world will say, the something that's wrong with the world is out there. What the Bible says is what is most fundamentally wrong with the world is that apart from Christ, it's in here. It is the identity of human beings upon entrance into the world being sinners. That sin is not what humans do. It is who we are as human beings uh, uh, apart from Christ. So the world says there's something wrong. The Bible says what's wrong is a matter of identity, not things that you can fix. So how do you fix it? What's the solution? The Bible says this, faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we'll throw that out all the time, right? You know, put your faith in Christ. Let me explain to you what that means. C.S. Lewis says this. Faith in Christ is both the easiest and hardest thing to do. It's the easiest thing to do because it's one thing that you and I have to, to do. Put our faith and trust in Christ. It's the hardest thing to do because that one thing is everything. It's, it's handing over your whole self to Jesus. And, and that's easier than what it is that we're trying to do. We're trying to make ourselves better while still holding on to ourselves. And what Jesus is saying is you need to fundamentally change. He goes on and says this. If I'm a grass field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but it won't produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be plowed up and re-sown. If your identity is a sinner, try hard to stop all the sins that you want to do, but all that that does is just cut the grass down. And do you know what? Grass grows back. In order to change what we do, our fundamental identity has to change, and that's what the gospel does. It makes us new people where we are not the same people that we once were. That God, who was the perfect leader, who had no reason for everybody to be suspicious of what he's done, who had a perfect track record with the way that he led people, Humanity, we still found a way to distrust him. We thought that there was some good that he had that he withheld from us. And so we said, I would rather have that good now 
then let go of this good and spend an eternity with him. And as we do that, we convince everybody we come into contact with to do the same thing. So God's righteous wrath sits on us, and you and I would be the recipients of that wrath, but God provided a solution in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul talks about this in Romans 6, hear what he says. Paul says this, look, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He goes on in verse 6 to say, for we know this, listen, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin that we had that was ruled, the, the, the body of flesh that we had that was ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that you and I may no longer be enslaved to sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die to make you better. He died to make you new. He died to fundamentally change your identity so that you are no longer who you once were. And the reason why Paul says that the pastor, that God's leader, has to hold on to this message is this. The world gets older. The world may technologically advance, but the world doesn't change. The same problems that we have now are the same problems that have endured since the creation of the world. There is nothing new under the sun. Therefore, if the problem with the world is the same as it was thousands of years ago, the solution with the world is the same as it was thousands of years ago, and you don't need anybody telling you any different. And so this pastor is to have two voices. Dave Chappelle in an interview said this, that uh, every African-American man is bilingual. He speaks uh, job interview and street vernacular, right? In the same way, Paul at the end here says this. No, listen. So what the pastor is to do, he's to be comprehensive in his gospel work. Look here at the end of verse 9. So that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. What he means by this is that he's got to both comfort and correct. If you, the gospel is meant to bring smiles to the faces of people that are frowning. If as you're listening and as you hear God's word being preached, if the only thing that you do is frown, if you always walk away feeling dejected, and brought down, and you're never lifted up and encouraged with the good news of the gospel, then whoever has the Bible is using it wrong. 
there is bad news, but it's supposed to lead us to good news, to celebration, to joy, to being reminded that apart from Christ, all God has is wrath from us. But once our identity has been changed, if you are a Christian, there is not an ounce of wrath that God has for you. If you are a Christian, even in your moments of turning away, even in your moments of doing the very things that he's called us not to do, God is not coming after you with a ruler to punish you. He's coming after you, reminding you of your identity, of who you are. That for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ, God has nothing but love and affection to show your way. And what that does is it gives us this sense of rest where we know we don't have to perform for God, but we live lives that are holy because of the gratitude that we have for him. And God's word is meant to encourage us. Do you feel burdened? The gospel, God's word, has promises for you to believe, to walk in the new life that God has set for you. However, God's word and the gospel is also useful to refute, to correct us when we go wrong. So you don't want somebody that always corrects you, but you don't want somebody that never does either. Takeaway that we get from this is just this. Yo, one of the major duties of a pastor is word ministry teaching, and it comes in so many shapes and forms. This one-on-one counseling, Pastor Mo is one of the best counselors that I know, conversations, small groups, adjusting the way that we think as a church, but hear this, the reason why God has tied pastoral ministry and his authority to the teaching of the word is so that you and I know that there is no inherent authority In what I think. I'm happy to talk to you about what job you should take. The person that you should marry. Where you should live. But at the end of the day, I don't have any authoritative particulars. Unless you're saying, John, I want to be a professional bank robber. Then I'll say, well, you can't do that uh, because stealing is sin. But outside of that. The goal of a pastor or a leader in God's church is to equip the church to think like God thinks. And that does not come with anybody living your life for you as much as it is with them equipping you with the principles that you need. Teach me how to think like God. Really, all of this boils down to this. Does this person make you want to be more like Jesus? Do the people that surround him look more like Jesus? Um, I got this card in the mail this week. I I forget what day we were at work, but um, got a letter from the University of South Carolina Athletic Department. So at first I thought I was being recruited because I've been in the gym playing ball, Um, 
Then I opened it up, and I found that was not the case. Um, And I just want to read you this card uh, from a guy that I do not know but knew my brother. And he says this, "Um, John, I pray this note finds you well. I'm writing to tell you how much your brother Sam meant to me. I met, I, I met Sam while I lived in Memphis. I linked up with him at Fellowship Memphis. Sam explained the gospel to me like never before. It changed my life. I would join his D group, which was in his home with his wife and his kids, until his death. I owe so much to him. I still think about him daily. I am in training for full-time pastoral ministry. My journey started not with a sermon, but with a talk with your brother. Does he love what's good? What comes out? Again, I just wanted to tell you what he meant to me. I know hearing the stories of the effects of our loved ones had on someone helps with the grieving. I do hope our paths will cross. So in one sense, we look, and it seems like this is a high bar, but if you step back and just think, does this person make me want to be more like Jesus? Do the people that surround him look more like Jesus? These are the people that God has left in our church, and I want you to know this, church. Um, They are not hiding. They're at work already in our church. I'm sure y'all can stand up and give names of folks that are there. But they're ordinary men in the life of our church that are doing the ordinary things that Christians should do in an extraordinary way, with extraordinary character. They're faithful in the close relationships. They carry themselves fruitfully. And they cling to the gospel firmly. One of the reasons why the Bible uses household language when it talks about the family of God and the role of a pastor is so that you and I know how serious it is and just how high the bar would be. Uh, What we used to do was we would sit down And the criteria for the nomination of pastor that we would give is this. We sat down and looked at the lives of folks. Was we would say this. If I were to die and I had to leave the spiritual care of Chandra and Ava into the hand of this man. Would I be confident that I would see them in heaven when they die? Now. Spiritual care. There's lots of guys that are vegan and do all types of things that I would never like, care for my family. But spiritually, I'm confident. And I just want you to, to know, you know this is the vision for pastoral ministry. And you shouldn't settle for anything less. Our prayer is that God would do this in the life of the church in the months to come. I want you to know that me, Richard, and Mo have a handful of men right here in the life of the church that we feel like have exemplified that. And next week at our meeting, 
right after church, we're going to spend time and we hope to bring them up front and to share them uh, with you as a church. And we ask that part of your job would be to see them. They're here. Our church is not that big. To get time with them in the course of the next few months and that we would affirm them. Your leadership is a gift to God's church. We want to do our part in just presenting the men in front of you, and we hope that you as a church would do your part to scrutinize them, but to celebrate them as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good gift of leadership. Uh, We ask that we wouldn't be suspicious of the people that you've placed in our flock, Uh, But I pray that you would help us to be wise, to hold them accountable, Father. Help us to be a church that celebrates the right things, Father. Help us to be a church that clings to the gospel, Lord. I pray that you would gift us with pastors that do the same thing. Pastors that live lives, Lord, that are morally blameless. Father, I pray... um, that all of that wouldn't be so that we can boast in how well we've done our job as a church, but all that would be so that we can push back against a lot of the bad PR that the church has gotten that keep people away from you, Father. Would you help us as a church to give an accurate testimony of the beautiful truth that you died to save us, to change us, to live lives that fully please you? It's in Jesus' name we pray.